0: Hey there, welcome to the Faces of Marketing podcast, where we talk about the human stories and lives of different people and perspectives in the marketing profession and entrepreneurs and movement makers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my close friend, Mark Bitterman, who has incredible energy, uses magically descriptive words, fantastical. He is a James Beard (laughs) award winner for his creative work with SALT. And most importantly, he invented a new word, I guess, in the dictionary. Uh, that it was invented for him called "selmelier." My okay. Yeah. okay. And CEO of a creative retail company called The Meadow and a salt company creatively called Bitterman Salt Company or Salt Co. Uh,
1: welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. That was the big innovation was instead of being BittermanSalt.com, we decided to go with BittermanSalt.co. And and sales just went through the roof. Oh, man. Yeah, Everybody yeah. was just wowed. It's all in the URL. Oh, <laughs> perfect. That's perfect. This, that's the end of the discussion. We're done. I can go. Nice, nice.
0: So just for the audience's sake, Mark and I are in an entrepreneur group. And um, over the last four years, we get together for a half day every month uh, with uh, eight of us. We also go on a retreat typically in central Oregon um, we've had crazy adventures in Toronto, not really, but uh, <laughs> it was kind of a cool global conference there but we've had uh we've become good friends over the last four years, and this uh, interview is going to be an opportunity to explore some some deeper questions uh, that we don't always get to about childhood and stuff like that um, but before we go there or maybe a segue to get there um Mark and I both did this TED style talk about two weeks ago, exactly, oh, baby. yeah, and it's one of those talks where you only have eight to ten minutes and you have to literally kind of rip your heart out of your chest, put it on the table, and get super vulnerable with three hundred plus people and um, tell a really powerful story in a short amount of time and I thought you did an incredible job, and um, thank you yeah. And so, you know, with my intro of, you know, and I am from a family of big exaggerators and stuff like that, <laughs> you, uh, your story was that you were, you know, kind of a loner and like a little awkward and, and very to yourself, which is hard for me to grasp because you're so social mm-hmm. and like gregarious and you connect with people and all of these things and i just kind of wanted to get a sense of like did was that were you exaggerating at all for the talk so people kind of got it um because then you were president of you know student body of your or of of your high school and all this stuff or like was it real like what was growing up like and what was that whole what was that all about
1: yeah you know i it was not an exaggeration i think it was frankly an understatement um no one wants to just get up there and play a violin and <laughs> uh and weep on stage but uh no i i uh i grew up feeling uh, in a, with a sense of kind of tremendous isolation and um I'm, i i've most of my memories of my childhood are me walking alone in the fields uh me burying my cat alone in the backyard uh like sad that, sad, that's shit. sad shit <laughs> i i I remember a lot of really sad things. And I was a very strange uh kid I think too um uh i I had a really close relationship to animals, as maybe loners sometimes do but no i was i was um I, I did not feel that it was a safe. Or reliable thing to do to engage with people when I was little, and um, obviously there are probably a lot of reasons why that came about. But the upshot was, I was, I was not the gregarious person. I was, uh, I was not an unconfident. I was very confident in my in my own way. I did things my own way. I would uh, create amazing things. I would build amazing things. I would, uh, uh, I would do a lot of things. Where.
0: It- put us in a place was this back east or was it in california this
1: is in santa barbara california okay. right. so um, i had a dog named koa that would uh accompany me on long treks up into the mountains and i would catch anything i caught scorpions i would bring rattlesnakes home to my mom and she was not real happy with that kind of behavior but i was like live ones or did live kill ones yeah. and put them in a box and watch them uh, and then they'd get out and we'd have a rattlesnake in the garage <laughs> um so uh, uh you know i i the, the story i told during the talk was that we had a, a chicken coop we raised chickens um i converted that chicken coop into a rat coop um and then made it into kind of a rat palace um with just hundreds of little cages and nooks and crannies and beautiful clean sawdust floor and i would go in there and just sit down there and hang out with the rats and read a book and i would be like I was definitely not like if you would have made a movie of that, it would have been a really, really crazy, weird imagery. But to me, it was just like, you know, one more thing to kind of build and watch and discover. You know, I love the I love the behavior of these animals. Um, I love the behavior of when I would clean the rat coop. I would fill up garbage cans with sawdust and then put the rats in just piles into because the, there were you know dozens, maybe even hundreds of rats at some times. Into the garbage cans, they run around the bottom of the can with the sawdust, and then I would go in the the coop and clean it out, and then it would come out of the coop and turn around, and there'd be a hawk perched on the surf on the edge of the garbage can, staring down, like right next to you, like four feet away. A red tail, which is like those big. things are yeah yeah big as a house. Yeah. Um, so I had this kind of, but I just thought that was a, the, a rad. I thought it was all rad, and. And I didn't have a lot of friends that felt the same way. <laughs> I was kind of yeah, on I my can, own with that.
0: I can see that. But that is like a documentary that should have been made. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. not too late. We can, yeah, <laughs> we can go back.
1: Get a child actor.
0: Awesome. So, and then um, mom and dad and you have a sister and what, yeah, what was family structure like? Yeah.
1: So I had a brother and sister, both younger, um, and um, they... I mean, I am and always have been very close to them, Uh, especially my brother and I have had just a great bond our whole lives. Um, But, you know, they had their own lives, their own circles of friends and those things. And and again, it wasn't like I was um, I wasn't alone in that profound of a level. I definitely had my family around me, my mom and uh, I were also pretty close. My dad was a bit more aloof and harder to connect to. And then they were divorced when I was around eight. So I lived alone with my mom and, and my brothers and sisters. And I think that maybe also partially contributed to my feelings. Um, the idea of being the eldest in a house with a mother uh, and family that needed support. And I think that I did a lot to kind of compensate for that. And that probably drove a little bit of a wedge between me and the rest of the world at the time.
0: Was L- like financial support or just emotional support? Or- emotional
1: uh, uh being there being stable being the person that people could rely on for things being the person that would never break down would not cry would not uh would just be you know I, I was I was always fixing shit that was a big thing I would do uh uh the story that uh my mom talks about as being traumatic for her was 10 times more traumatic for me was uh remember one time setting my mom, would, we had a big garden in the backyard. My mom set gopher traps. No, she didn't. I did set gopher traps. And um, the gopher traps would not always kill the gophers. So you'd pull the trap out of the ground, and there's this screaming little beautiful. And you know, I already told you how much I love rats, my God. Yeah. So, yeah. and I would have to go out there with a shovel and 86 the gopher and i remember just sobbing and sobbing and you you know i'm a little kid i'm striking this gopher with a shovel and it's not dying and i'm sobbing and That's hard. it was like there was rough stuff you know yeah. but those things are really really hard in those times of course they compound to make you reflect and think and they build a person over time so uh, I just have, a, a, a you know, a lot of experiences of the, that kind of nature. They're a little bit off kilter compared to your average, you know, getting up in the morning and making Rice Krispie Treats with the family and going off and playing kickball and coming home and having a nice sudsy bath. And it yeah. wasn't that kind of experience. You Not know? Beaver Cleaver. Wasn't Beaver Cleaver. Um, but on the flip side, you know, I had a very... Uh, uh, creative household. My mom is an artist and an extremely kooky human being. Um, and I always absolutely love that about her. Um, we, uh, I would, uh, uh, kind of a typical evening is borderline traumatic, but hysterical at the same time As we'd be sitting down at the dinner table. I'd have my sitting against the, the leaning against the wall and leaning back in my chair and uh, my mom is in the kitchen, which is facing, and she'd pull a potato out of the oven, and she'd shriek like hot potato, and she'd throw it at the wall with all of her strength. <laughs> and she was a basketball player. So the, ba- the no. hot potato would hit the wall and explode all over, and she'd tap- cackle with laughter, and we'd all be mortified, and then, of course, we'd laugh, <laughs> you know, through the shock and terror. Uh, um, that
0: sounds awesome.
1: We had uh, one thing I never even thought twice about was one time I met somebody, uh, a high school buddy, uh, sorry, a a childhood buddy. I met him later on in life. And he said, yeah, you guys were the family with the rope swing in your house. And I was like, yeah, so what? He's like, well, it was the coolest thing in the world. It's was like, yeah, but you had a rope swing in your living room, like a, kind of a high peak yeah. ceiling. And it's like, that was the kind of oddball stuff we had going on. And that was just, not, like, you didn't think anything of it. No, not at all. We, I yeah. mean, there was definitely a little bit of a r- rumble in the neighborhood that we were being raised by wolves. <laughs> Or rats, <laughs> or, or, or yeah, w- w- wolves, are things slightly less evolved. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's great. So,
0: um, so in that ten-year-old boy mindset that you had, an adult comes along and says, "Mark, what do you want to be when you grow up?" What was your immediate response?
1: You know, I I definitely wrestled with that. Um, Part of me thought I wanted to be a surgeon, and the reason I wanted to be a surgeon was because I was so fascinated with how things worked, and I had a really, I became pretty deft with my hands. I could really, I was soldering things and fixing compressor units and refrigerators, and, and I was a kid. It was like really, really interested in those things, and I thought, and I loved animals in life, so I thought, I should be a surgeon, but I don't think I, don't think I ever felt that in my heart, but I just remember, you know, I got microscopes, and I would dissect things, and I was, Fascinated by that. But I think what always resonated was um, being an engineer of some sort. I loved putting things together. I thought being an engineer would be fun. Um, What I didn't get from being an engineer in my childhood imagination of an engineer was the kind of unbridled creativity that I was attracted to. Like it seemed so process driven, even as a kid. I was like, I don't know if I can work like that. And then I would meet an engineer and it was. A kind of guy with ink stains on his fingers and a plastic pen holder and one of those kind of weird little checkered button-up shirts and eyeglasses. And I was like, I don't think that's the person that I am. So just, you know, my childhood imagination of an engineer didn't fit. So what that evolved to um, was a little bit different by the time I was in high school. um, My whole life as a child, um, I I had a quite unstructured childhood. I did not have a bedtime. I did not have a come-home time. Except for meals, um, but what I did have was my mom was militant about writing letters, and I consistently, borderline daily, had to write letters to my grandmother. Okay. No yeah. family. Well, yeah, family, family members. members.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, to anybody pre-email, if you yeah. can believe it. This was um, just a little while before email. <laughs> Um, so no I wrote letters I wrote letters that were uh, on a typewriter I wrote them by hand at first and I got a typewriter and I wrote them in a typewriter and uh, this letter writing became storytelling and I became quite adept at at writing letters and I could rip out a good solid entertaining smart three-page letter and run back outside and disappear into the fields and um, so by the time I was in high school I was almost a cocky writer I was like I can write circles around people. I'm really really good at writing. I should be a writer. And that's where I kind of found myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That's cool. So, yeah, high school, you know, in your talk, you you, you kind of had this juxtaposition of like I'm this crazy loner and of course and what wouldn't I do but like run for president of student council, which is like everyone's thinking, what? But to me, that's not surprising because you could connect with the creatives. You could connect with the jocks. You could connect with all of these different types of people, but maybe you weren't like super tight friends with, or, or what was it by, by high school? You had to start, you know, getting friends by then to like, to have them elect you as president and yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. What was what was that all about? Like, what was high school like at this point, where you've started to gain all this confidence yeah. and stuff like that? So uh,
1: uh, uh, that's a really fascinating because that's uh, you know I think that I, I I have a son who's 15 now, um, and he's on the I knock on what I I think he's on the tail end of what's been a pretty rough. Uh, you know, those, those early adolescent years, those adolescent years. Rebellious, which is kind of like you. Yeah. He's he's (laughs) not at all unlike me. Um, And I think he rolls his eyes, but I'm like, dude, you don't, you don't know it. It's like you're, yeah, he's a, he's a handful. Um, But I, I, so I, I remember being like very not, not accepted, not part of the crew um, of anybody's crew in junior high school. But in high school, um, I started to be more kind of like th- the independence that I had probably developed over the time started to serve me better. I was definitely not part of a clique and didn't feel like I needed to be, which is what starts to happen. Pretty, you know, people start to group up in high school, uh, even more than on junior high. So I, um, I, did not have a lot of friends, but I, uh, two things happened uh, in kind of close succession. One is that I started to get, um, I started to figure out how to be with girls and uh, I could call them women. They're probably young women at this point, um, uh, became a close companion for me. And I found the ability to be really, really open and connected to women and really like women. And I don't mean that just in the way like, yeah, so tell me more. Yeah. I mean, I really liked yeah. them. Uh-huh. I, was, I, w- I was grateful for their generosity and the love and the openness and the, the intelligence that I found in women, girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved them. And I had a couple of really amazing girlfriends. Uh, and in high school, one of the things, that this was a byproduct of that. That gave me enormous. It gave me both confidence and a level of prestige because I was having sex. I was having real relationships with the girls that were beyond sex. I was, it's, I was not frivolous in it, um, mm-hmm. except when I was. But uh, you were super respectful about it. And, yeah, yeah. I was, I was into and even the gals that I think I'm sure there were gals that I'd, I I could have treated much, much, much better. I could say that probably throughout my whole life. It certainly wasn't my intention. I was always very grateful and very appreciative and, and uh, 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 admired these, these uh, people that I knew. So that allowed me to open up a little bit. Um, it also um, um, uh, helped me to kind of maybe branch out, network, meet their friends. And I ended up with uh, a, a small crew of guys and gals uh, who were more in the artistic bent. So the artist scene, mm-hmm. um, and those people I think back of, on very, very, very fondly because they, it was just natural that they accepted me. They kind of identified me as an artist, what I would never once thought of in my life. I was like, I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I just don't. I don't have that. I wish I was that good of a person, that cool of a person that I could be an artist, but I, I wasn't that. So that artist crew became uh, a really nice trampoline for my self-expression I was like I was I started doing a lot more graphical arts I started making cookie things so this is before computers or before they were much fun that's for sure yeah so I would start doing these crazy collages and going down to Kinko's and and making 200 of my collages Mm. and I would paste them all over the school and the kind of like a artistic manifestation of some sort Mm. they became really popular and I made them crazier and crazier and crazier, and they're—I I don't think there are very many of them that have survived. But they were—they were pretty neat, uh, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, Russian poster artists had nothing on me back then. Dang, um, that is cool. They were, they were it was really interesting. And, and
0: this, this is Santa Barbara High School. Santa Barbara High School.
1: Yeah. It was a big school. I think 3,200 people in the student body. Very diverse, uh, Hispanic community. Uh, 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 there were blacks, there were whites, there were rich kids, there were poor kids. Um, there were L.A. kids, there were suburban kids. It was, it was quite a mix. Yeah. And I was fortunate that I got, to, I got diverted to that school from I was on track to go to a much more uh, um, homogeneous school where I would not have fit in as well or found my place as well. So I was doing this and then it was just on a drunken night. I would have this great, uh, really, really wise way of behaving as a high school student was we would get in my friend's convertible rabbit and uh, go off onto the bluffs looking over the city and drink and then drive around, hanging on, you know, holding on to the roll bar of the car. Um, Yeah. If my kids listen to this and do that. (laughs) Yeah. There's another thing coming. But that's what we would do. And then whenever... Uh, once someone's saying, Mark, you should run for president. I'm like, absolutely, without hesitation. So I ran for president. And and I, I what I did that was, I think, successful was I completely, I did not understand the mold. I did not understand what the student body was or what student government was. Mm-hmm. I did not understand uh, really how the school worked terribly well. But what I did know was that I thought, uh, the status quo was dull and unexamined mm-hmm. and sleepy and I was like let's just not do that mm-hmm. so I would do a series I had my poster art campaign which was in full swing before I even became before I ran and the second thing I did was I did crazy performances so at student meetings at the pep rallies and at the, whatever the big things we do in the stadiums and in the basketball gym one of them is I would dress up in a white jumpsuit and I would stand there at the microphone and I would start to deliver a completely nonsensical speech. And then a bunch of <laughs> kids would come out and throw eggs at me
0: For on real? stage.
1: Yeah, I did that. And then the other thing was I was like, I would sew my own clothes a lot. So I had this crazy, gigantic yellow suit. Huge. But not
0: sequins and jumpsuit like someone might wear on stage <laughs> in front of 300 people. Okay. Anyway, keep no, going. No, okay. no, no.
1: <laughs> Not in like someone might wear. Um, and uh, like a Ryan Buchanan type person. Uh, so I would do that. And then I would be giving a speech. And then all of a sudden this music would come on. And it would be like King Sunny Day, This really cool African music would come on. And I would start. The, the camera would pan down. And you would see that I had this pair of like 72 waist pants with suspenders on. <laughs> and I would be like just doing this like hip dance where I'd swing my hips back and forth. And then some friend would run and jump into my arms. Some girl or somebody would jump <laughs> into my arms and I'd be dancing. Dude, we're like kindred spirits. I, I, I would do a lot
0: of stuff. Not yeah. like the specificity of what you're talking about. I was more of like a prankster, but yeah. I love it. Like, and what you're talking about is so much like my mom, who is the most entertaining, amazing woman ever, she has ingrained in me that like the worst thing you can do in life is like have a boring life. And that's exactly what you're describing is like you just rebelled yep.
1: from like boredom. I I think your mom is, I think that's the, I would agree with that. I think that um, a boring life an uninteresting life, um, that's just the biggest waste. I, I think that there's this crazy, it's almost, it's, it's hallucinatory how special the gift of being alive is. And it's so easy to think that being alive is what is, it, but it's not, that's not how it is. Uh, so, I definitely felt that there was a, a, a multifaceted nature to existence. And I was really interested in understanding what that was. Um, it was part of what I spoke about at that EO Talks was this go it alone. Um, I felt very alienated by the kind of self-satisfied, middle class, um, Santa Barbara. Normal, quote unquote. Normal. And yeah. you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a little housing development. Um, beautiful by today's standards you know it was a nice place to grow up in the fields and back of my house and all that but i still rejected the you know the 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 cars neatly parked on the side of the road and you know the roast for dinner and i was just like there's so much more you can do and you know so i was building my fort and provisioning it and going up and spending the night in the woods and i was like something anything to not do that totally.
0: Yeah, totally get that. So, as we segue into this you have a little bit of uh Steve Jobs in you in that you went to Reed College. You probably didn't take a calli- calligraphy class that led to the, you know, making of Apple computer, but like him you dropped out pretty quickly from Reed, went to another college. And yeah, like what yeah, describe that whole process. And then for seven, it was like seven years in Tibet, but seven years of like yeah. adventuring around Europe. That sounds amazing, but also like so
1: different from so many of our stories. Yeah, no, I, I had a really, I think, really traditional college trajectory. Um, <laughs> I went, uh, I applied to three colleges. I was not a serious student in high school at all. Um, my But Reed is really good it's tough to get into yeah i mean i it was yeah i I was not a student i just wasn't Uh, but what that's not what happened was i uh i applied to a bunch of schools i actually got into uc berkeley and boston college and i so really good schools but i did that on the strength believe it or not back then good old days writing writing i wrote badass essays and i my essays were intentionally breaking the mold. And I, I said, how am I going to mess with the, this person's mind? The first sentence or three that they read, they're going to like, what the hell is this? And I'm going to make it stick together. And, uh, and I said, I'm not motivated by grades. I'm motivated by achievement. And high school didn't challenge me and blah, 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 blah. It was all, you know, just spun to make a really compelling argument. But the, honest, the authenticity in that was that I was passionately interested in going to college. I wanted the academic, the intellectual challenge, the academic challenge. Although I don't think I knew what an academic challenge was, um, I was I was not I was not blowing smoke. I was like I I need to go to a really good school and have a really good time. But interestingly enough, I didn't go to those schools. I applied also f- to the University of Colorado Boulder. And decided on the logic that it was not in California and therefore near my family, and not. Is kind of wasn't really, I wasn't really as attracted to being back east. I was like, I'll go to Boulder. So I've made, uh, uh, truth be told, just a very unwise and uh, in ill informed decision to go to Boulder, Colorado, where it's a giant university, big Midwestern town. I had never been more alone in my life. In my long and somewhat lonely life, a <laughs> short, somewhat lonely life, I did not fit in. I did not find people that I could connect with at all. Um, and I did not like the academics. It was, I, I was getting straight A's. Um, I was paying way my way to a large degree and I didn't enjoy it. So I dropped out and that's when I had already bought a motorcycle and been traveling around a lot in between. I decided to, uh, save up some money and move to Europe. So that's what I did. I bought a van. I got a job as a typesetter and doing graphic design and typesetting. I saved a, bit of money and just b- hoofed it to Paris found a tiny beautiful little garret overlooking the city uh, in Ile de la Ile de la, no it's called Cité de l'Ermitage this tiny little little corridor off that on one of the hills in Paris and and I lived there for a while and I wrote and I learned French so you didn't know a soul over there and
0: you just Got it you've you learned French, you got a job, like you supported yourself. Like that is such independence for a
1: nineteen, eighteen, nineteen year old. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was around nineteen, maybe I went so I went to Colorado for a year and a half, so I was probably nineteen or twenty at the time. And um it, it was definitely a step into the unknown. I was powerfully attracted to Paris. Um, in my DNA, I swear to God, and I remember knowing in junior high school I wanted to go and live in France. I do not know why or wh- no clue where that came from. Um, and and I was right. I, I I remember I got off the plane. Uh, I found my way into, took a train into town, got off. I didn't know where I was or how the city worked. And, I'm, and it's dawn. It's like 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning. And I'm walking through the streets and I stop at a fruit stand on the side of the road and buy a peach and I am walking down this little cobbled narrow street and it's chilly in the dawn and I'm eating this ice-cold white peach and I'm just like oh my god I'm I'm where I belong wow. I, this is my place huh. and uh, and so I I love being in Paris
0: and and just the audience doesn't know this but you just even that story alone like Food and place is so huge. Like, yeah. wherever you go, like, you know, yeah. when I'll come back from a trip, like, hey, Ryan, like, what did you eat there? Like, what was <laughs> that like? So, I mean, when did that culinary creativity come in? Was it just being in Paris and you just absorb it from being
1: there? Yeah. I I think it I honestly think it started just in uh I think I was a fairly sensual child. I think I was attracted to the tactility and beauty of things. I was, like I said, I loved animals I, and, and I loved the beauty of them. And I was, and it wasn't an academic love like in a magazine. Like I would go out and find them and I would hold a, like a I mean, literally I hold a rattlesnake in my hand
0: That's cause crazy.
1: but I was so in love with how beautiful they were. The, the, just the meticulousness of how they're put together. Um, my first statement when I had uh, a, a, my first son was, "My God, these things are better engineered than any BMW. <laughs> They're just incredible how they make these things." Mm-hmm. So I was I was really really in love with that, and I and I similarly, you know, I'm the backyard garden where we grew a lot of vegetables, and uh, when we had before the rats, and we had chickens, and we had our eggs, and. I just I always thought that it was something incredible in the sunshine and the smell of the tomatoes and the caterpillars uh, uh, forming chrysalises that would become uh, those zebra tailed butterflies and I just I love this matrix this web of nature and smell and sunshine and I reveled in it as a as a child Um, and, and coming into the house with a warm tomato and slicing it And putting it on my mom's fresh baked bread and sprinkling salt on top of that was something that would just, you know, I loved it. I remember and I remember thinking like, "My gosh, mom, this really is better than junk food." You know, it's like what kind of kid says that? But I was like, "Gee, mom, your tomato sandwich really is better than a Big Mac." Do you think avocado toast is going to be big someday? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If only I had the foresight.
0: But you, but everything you described is these simple ingredients, but then, but just like fully immersing yourself into experiencing them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I I think I just had that in me. And, uh, and then when I was in France, uh, that was, that became not a short story, became a long story. I ended up living there off and on for about seven years. I lived a bit in London. Um, I spent time. Um, in germany uh, but but centered mostly in, in france I ended up in a chateau in the south of france restoring it mm-hmm. and uh i took i just talked my way into this job mm-hmm. me and my typewriter got me that job <laughs> and uh for a handyman job like <laughs> yep. oh here's a really good writer who's a construction <laughs> guy like perfect job fit there but that was that became a, a a transformative experience for me because living there on this farm, and being part of the the community there, I was the American. I was, there was no English spoken within a hundred miles, and I would fix things. And by then, I was really good at fixing stuff and making it up along the way. And I. Uh, built walls and repaired parquet floors and restored and fixed uh, these gigantic ancient, they're about eight foot tall, two inch thick uh, oak shutters and I fixed hundreds of them over the course of a few years in my atelier in, the, in a little farmhouse nearby and I became part of the community and I would go out in the morning and I would hunt and I hunted a wild boar and we'd find pheasant and uh, and guinea hens and we would forage for mushrooms and 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 treat them, make dress them, make local dishes, and I became enamored of this world. Like from the 1700s. Yeah, it's yeah. straight back. Yeah, uh, and you know, and that was legit stuff because like we were on we were on forested property, so there was a, a lumberjack crew and their cabins, which was a beautiful farmhouse actually. But we go in there and uh, and you know take game meat or 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 uh, or lamb and throw that on a big piece of slate on a fire and sit around with big cups of sludgy coffee and smoke cigarettes and eat this lamb off of a slate on a toasty wood fire in a farmhouse in the, in a rainstorm. And Sounds amazing. That's what like we were doing. And I was like, this is like legit. Like I, I was like, I know this is the world. This is a place and a people and a time that has such amazing authenticity. So maybe... I found in this some of what I was so suspicious of growing up as a child in Santa Barbara, where I was questioning the status quo and questioning the the complacency or the manufacturedness of things. And looking back, by the way, now I don't feel the same way. I I wish I could have embraced and loved more of what I had in that upbringing. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, doing a little research on linkedin and facebook for you um all of five minutes and there's this gap of uh, um time before the origin story of your company but i think the one maybe touch on this and then i want to hear about the origin story of the meadow is you didn't you do like a tech company in between when you came back yeah. to the states, I mean, if you found one gap, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of gaps, but I, I'm, you know, we've known each other for four years, so I know a little yeah. bit of your background. Yeah,
1: but... a, a little bit on the nonlinear side. So I was in, yeah. I was in uh, France. I then, from France, decided I wanted to go to college. I realized that I wasn't reading books that were hard enough for me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, in, I wasn't able to understand the things that I wanted to understand. Mm-hmm. I needed an academic background, so I decided that the best, I learned that the best academic school that I knew of in the world, uh, it was more attractive to me than a Harvard or a Stanford, uh, was Reed. Mm -hmm. It was known as ruthlessly academic, Mm -hmm. um, geekily academic, uh, challenging, smart school, and I was like, I want to go there. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know about Steve Jobs. I don't know if he was even a guy back then. Oh yeah, I'm sure he he was, was. he was. (laughs) Uh, But I don't think I knew anything about that. Um, This was still uh, uh, pre-internet, mm-hmm. so I wasn't, like, Googling who went to read that's cool. Right. That wasn't right. available yeah. to me. Um, so I applied to read, um, got in, and, uh, but by then I had straight A's from my college, my year and a half of tr- college before I dropped out. Mm-hmm. So probably a combination of that and, again, probably solid essays yeah. got mm-hmm. me in. Went to read, absolutely loved it. Um, I went there for a year and a half. The reason I left was because the woman that I met, who then became my wife, Jennifer, she was a graduate student there and wanted to move to New York to be an art historian. Mm. So I was like, fine, fine. Uh, And she had graduated from Sarah Lawrence. So I applied there and got in and got a other side of a very good education. Which, I, which has led to me kind of a lifelong appreciation of the difference between an academic education and an intellectual education. Mm. Uh, Read, it's about the books and the materials and the processes that you go through to investigate them thoroughly and uh, form theses and defend them. And uh, Sarah Lawrence is more about the development and creation of ideas and the fostering of those ideas. Mm. And that's my probably both schools are going to sue me right now but that's the way i would <laughs> distill the two of them
0: that's cool but i um, love them both okay so but let's get to like this whole salts empire like yeah of all
1: things so from sarah lawrence uh, so i went back to france for a little bit then i went found myself being a uh, a friend of mine from reed asked me to be the ceo of an inter- a digital branding company out of the blue. I didn't know anything about branding or digital. Uh, but I did like to tell stories. Mm-hmm. and so, Or being a CEO. Or I knew less about being a CEO than any of those. Right, yeah. Any of the above. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, tr- authentically, truly the case. I didn't have a clue about what was expected of a CEO. Mm-hmm. But I was now uh, the running the U.S. To company for a larger digital branding company based in France. And um, things fell apart. The dot-com bubble burst, everything melted down, and I ended up not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. But long story short, I eventually found myself as a, as a marketing director for a really nice little company in Bakersfield, California. Okay. Natural progression. Mm-hmm. Uh, really enjoyed that, but I was still, I have to say, genuinely unemployable human being. Mm-hmm. I had never held down a regular job, and I was now in charge of teams and people, um, and was clueless about how to do that. Mm-hmm. So that was the one, I think it's the only job I've been, f- I've only been fired twice, mm-hmm. I'm proud to say. Um, once was for not showing up for a shift when I was a waiter at a restaurant and I just didn't know I had the shift. So that was a legitimate college boy mistake. And the other was because I just was destroying this company. <laughs> 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 Different scale. Yeah, Different yeah. scale. But I I was doing great things. All the branding things that I put in are still there. If you go look at their website, still all in place. So I think they loved the creativity and the passion I brought, but I wasn't able to gel a team. Right. So um, moved to Oregon, and uh, I was writing. Uh, I had a technology newsletter I was writing and publishing mm-hmm. that I picked up along the way for my brother, and I was enjoying that. It was allowed me to make some money and not work super hard. So I, it gave me room to play around. And it was at that time that my then wife said she wanted to quit her job as an art historian at a, at a really prestigious gallery here in Portland, and she wanted to open a flower shop. So I offered to help, and so I built the store. I was a builder, and back then the, all these beautiful reclaimed timbers that you see all around you all the gorgeous rough-hewn old growth dug fir and cedar that was all throwaway wood back in just back in 2006 we all think that this modern you know rustic industrial look that's everywhere now is like part of the ethos it's not it's a brand new it's spanking new invention back then all that wood was free and it was the cheapest materials i could uh-huh. get so we built the store out of that and that generated an incredibly beautiful little store yeah and uh part of the deal was that i was going to be able to put my salt collection which uh we haven't talked much about but it wasn't that big of a deal to me in my life i had been traveling and collecting this kind of primal ingredient from around the world and Mm -hmm. connecting with people through this primal ingredient called salt and i put it in the store and As a side job, I would wander in during the day and stand there in front of this little wall of salt. And if somebody happened to wander in, I'd usually be over at Amnesia Brewery drinking beer. uh, (laughs) And I put a little sign up on the door that said, come get me or or, here's my cell phone. Mm -hmm. And people would call me or I'd go over there and meet and I would tell them about salt. Mm -hmm. And that was probably one of the biggest discoveries of my life was not salt, but that people didn't know about salt. Mm Mm-hmm. People didn't know that it's this kind of window into the culinary and uh, and economic and cultural uh, um, worlds out there. Mm-hmm. So I was telling stories about salt and cooking and where these salt makers came from and what they did and what they were about. And it just exploded. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself um, a lot like the story I told at EO Talks was I was just... Just doing it as a thing to do. I was just filling up, you know, watching David Letterman late at night and sitting on the bed every night for about six months, just filling jars of salt and mm-hmm. bundling them up and going out in the morning and selling them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was just a kooky thing. I definitely didn't think it was a serious business, but I enjoyed doing it and mm-hmm. developed some systems, developed a website, developed a point of sale. That's not really true. We we had a physical cash register, meaning yeah. part of our antithet our antithetical business philosophy was we're we'll gonna have a Actual register, so mm-hmm. it was a, a a book. Ding
0: ding. Not even that, oh, just wow. a book. A book, okay. Like
1: the old ledger in the old yeah. general store. Yeah, we wrote down every transaction. It's highly scalable. It was beautifully scalable. It gave us great, anal- great analytics, you know, <laughs> to work right. with. Um, but on the flip side, is it gave the customer a serious wake up call that this was not a business like another business. So mm-hmm. that was really satisfying and really effective in that regard. So. That's how our business was kind of born. Um, we, our flowers never really became the, the focus of the business mm-hmm. uh, not from an economic standpoint. Right. It,
0: but they were always a beautiful... Uh, Welcome you into the store mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then ch- how did chocolate come about? So kind of right away, as soon as the salt was something that was selling, we're like, what the heck? Uh, this is not... This is interesting. Let's round out the store. And so I have been a wine drinker my whole life. Um, and that kind of goes back to my kind of geeky, odd childhood thing is way before I was drinking age, um, I was interested in wine. Mm-hmm. Probably just simply in the in the complexity of of it as a thing to mm-hmm. talk about vineyards and grapes and stuff. And so I was collecting wines in high school and not I mean, I wasn't a drinker. I didn't. I was a, I was drinking Uh, Henry Weinhardt's Private Reserve, which is, strangely enough, an Oregon beer. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was, you know, a little bit, I was interested in wine and collecting them. And by the time I was opening the store, I was not able to afford the bottles of wine that I loved. I Mm -hmm. was, they were way outside my bracket. So I had collected chocolate along the way, starting back in Paris, where chocolate was good, way before it was good in America. So I had uh, a pretty developed sense of chocolate, and I decided to scour the world for the best chocolate bars in the world. And this is, again, it's funny to think back on, but there were no chocolate bars. There were candy bars in America. So in 2006, again, we think craft chocolate, bean-to-bar chocolate, go into a good supermarket. There's all these chocolates everywhere. You go to Whole Foods, there's 30 gorgeous locally made chocolate bars. There were zero in 2006, so I went all over the world, found all the best chocolate bars, and imported them, begged, borrowed, stole, and brought them into the store, and that became also really successful. And also to balance that out, I did uh, cocktail ingredients. Bitters, right? Bitters was the the linchpin, so it was really more about cocktails overall. Uh, what was super overlooked? Vermouths. America thinks that vermouth is you know martini or Cinzano or whatever, but it's actually not. There are lots of really, really gorgeous vermouths. So I collected those, brought those to the store to kind of round things out with wine. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, then the missing piece of it all was the bitters. But again, back then, a handful. But I've collected all the bitters in the world, brought them into the store.
0: And you wrote a book on that, and you ate like, 1,700 bags of Frito-Lay chips to get through all the bitters to write the book?
1: Yeah, that would be the routine. So to to write a book on bitters, I had to taste all the bitters that were out there. And by this point, there were maybe seven or 800 bitters. So we went from from maybe 7 or 8 to around maybe 24 to a complete explosion uh, between 2006 and probably 2015 maybe when that book came out. So... The routine would be to retaste everything from scratch. So uh, we'd have crews of people come in, sit down, and we'd have bottles of bitters out. And you'd taste the bitters on your hand. You'd taste it in some sparkling water. You might taste it in little drinks or mock-up drinks or on a little bit of something or other. And then to cleanse your palate, you'd eat some ruffles. So... You'd have to because they're bitters. They're strong. Uh Bitters are an alcohol-based flavor extract with a bitter foundation, wormwood or chinchona bark or gentian root, these intensely bitter things with a ton of intensely aromatic things like orange zest or or rose or you name it. Mm -hmm. And so tasting one messes with your senses, and we had to taste dozens and dozens a day for a month straight. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was Ruffles, mm-hmm. Ruffles in between. So I go to the supermarket and just load my little Subaru up with Ruffles and come home and throw them in the living room. And we'd all just sit around and eat Ruffles. Mm-hmm. I'm having this, um, trying to,
0: like, what's going through my head as you're telling, describing your origin story of your company is, you know, I'm sure a lot of other people, entrepreneurs have thought like, I'm passionate about salt. So I'm like millions of people are passionate about chocolate a few people bitters but like there's a good niche there but do you think it's because of your storytelling and creating community of people like Mm. getting excited to spend on premium brands of salt and chocolate like why haven't lots of competitors sprung up other than these things are now gone mainstream like yeah, the, yeah. the premium versions of them yeah. like why aren't there more of the meadow out there
1: you know that's it's the that's a super core question um since day one people have said hi i love your business so much i'm going to do the same thing in toronto mm-hmm. i'm going to do the same thing in atlantic city i'm gonna do the same thing in vegas i'm gonna do the same thing in miami i, I can't wait tell me how to do it and there's that kind of doughy eye. I'm like, well, thank you for the compliment, but no, I'm not going to help you. Right. Um, right. But the, uh, but oddly enough in all these years, no one has copied the meadow. And the simple truth is, is I think it's a truly terrible business model.
0: (laughs) I love the honesty (laughs) of that.
1: I mean, retail is hard, but then you're super niche retail. Retail is hard. Um, and, uh, think about this so salt is something that people first off did not know was a food group it was the only thing we ever heard from anybody when we opened was salt is salt there's one kind of salt and it's free at restaurants and it's free it's free it's virtually free always yeah. you spend a, no money you never notice the difference and then you have salt and so no one no one knows what salt is and definitely by definition no one knows they need it then when they do you finally go through this you you pour your heart and soul out on and, and in front of them and convince them oh my gosh maybe i'm willing to take a chance on this and try this crazy person's idea of a food that i still don't quite believe is actually as special as they say it is well even if they convert which by the way they do
0: my wife has a salt pouch in her purse and like pulls it out of high yeah. end your salt uh at every restaurant that we go to. So it's it's real. Yeah, no, it it's, happens.
1: It's, you know, the, uh, my favorite article I ever read, uh, and I'm just going to name names, an uh, extremely brilliant uh, um, food writer. Um, actually, I won't name names, but a very, very brilliant food writer, uh, food scientist. Um, he writes an article in the New York Times, and he basically... Uh, pulls up this quote science he quotes two or three laboratory technicians who analyze salt and come to the conclusion that salt really isn't very different from one another so it really is really largely just kind of the perceived differences between these different salts and therefore this is all kind of a hoax and he's the biggest and most respected food scientist in the country that's his conclusion um but what's funny is he missed That Three scientists and their little lab is not a very good data set. I have tens upon tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of people who have interacted with the salt come back in with glittery eyes saying it transforms the way they cook. They're in love with salt. They cannot believe they ever thought that. So there's either a mass hypnosis thing going on or my data set's better than his data set. So long story short, though, going back to salt, is these people who are converts, and now there are hundreds of thousands and I think millions of them. How much do they use? Well, not much. They use a pinch. How often do they cook at home? Two days a week, four days a week, and a few pinches at a time. How often do we see these customers coming back for salt? Once or twice a year. So I've invented... Let's go on to bitters. Oh, Ryan, do you need bitters? I don't know. (laughs) Right,
0: yeah. So all of these, like premium but like the the consumption of them is not very big quantities
1: if you convince them to love the ingredient then they go home and they barely use any so i've specialized in things that people don't know they need and then when you do convince them that they do they never use it they use barely any and then, by the way, the way the world works is, of course, uh, uh, both us and others have helped popularize these ingredients. Now they're available from a supermarket that doesn't spend a nickel on you, educating you, uh, curating things, supporting small businesses that are just getting started. They don't care at all. They just buy whatever's working, throw it on the shelves, and now you go there and buy. save $3 by buying it from a right. supermarket.
0: Yeah, it's crazy, but it's so crazy and bad that it's good because you're opening a store in tokyo and you have two stores in portland and one in new york so
1: clearly something is working something is working yeah um so i think we have a we have a really really terrible business concept that's executed extraordinarily well Uh, i i would just invite all of you to do anything but salt chocolate and bitters Uh, as a business uh, just because I respect you and would not want want you to fail. (laughs) It's not a good idea. You know, I have a friend of mine, a very, very dear friend of both of ours. She had this just horrible idea, which is I'm going to do something that people never eat and don't get excited about and don't enjoy as a community, and that's ice cream. I'm like, oh, oh, wait, no, ice cream is a smart idea. That's what a smart person would do as a business. Uh
0: Um,
1: And she's killing it. And she's killing it. So – You know there are a million wonderful business ideas, and uh, salt, chocolate, and bitters are not them. Um, But on the flip side, they are truly the what I describe and what we talk about in our team and with everybody who's involved with us and with our customers directly is they are an opportunity to talk together. They invite conversation. So one of the true strokes of genius of my my now ex wife uh, in this in when we were designing our store and in the whole to be really clear the whole visual aesthetic uh feel vibe philosophy of the store was directly from her i was not involved in in those things i was execution and then bringing stories into the business uh and money into the business Um, but this philosophy that she had was we're not going to be like any other store we're not going to do any of the things that diminish the customer or diminish the value in relationship of the employee so for example that sounds weird and what does that mean for example, no signage. There's no signage. There's no shelf tags that say, you know, Robert Parker's score 86. We don't do that ever. There are a bunch of things that nobody knows what they are on a shelf. And it's all engagement.
0: It's like, you're, I mean, that's Europe, though. Like, you, you know, yep. you're in a small town and this super quaint store. And it's like, I have no
1: idea. You have to engage to to get the story you have to engage you know it's it's everything is about a relationship for us so when you come in we do not let you stand alone if you're the kind of person who loves to come into a store and be left the heck alone i fully respect that but believe it or not you're not our customer you're 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 way better off go to a supermarket you'll save money you'll find all kinds of cool things that are great you know supermarkets are really good nowadays go there no one will know what the heck they're talking about no one's going to want to talk to you and you can even save a few bucks so you're not our customer and we don't try to please you uh, when you walk into our store our job is to engage with you to welcome you in just, just like if you were coming into my home I'm sorry but I actually don't want a stranger to come into my house and sit on my couch and turn on the TV set you're not welcome to do that but if you would like to come in and I'll mix you a freaking rad drink set you down with a little plate of something it's legit yeah and chill out on the front porch you are absolutely welcome to my house So it's the same thing at our store. So that concept that's the foundation of our business, something in that is, I don't know that it's brilliant. It's just enough to make a salt chocolate bitters business not fail. Mm -hmm. And, but, okay. So the one marketing
0: question in a marketing podcast (laughs) is how the hell do you market that? Because it's so much discovery base. Yeah and you want the interaction of storytelling to be in person, how do, do you market events that you have?
1: Like, how does that happen? So, the, 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 the way that we have approached marketing uh, started with everything that we approached, which was dumb luck. Uh, it started because I was really passionate about talking about salt, and there was, I was the voice. Uh, and for many years, I was probably the only person that was really articulate about salt as a distinctive natural artisanal food and a window into the culinary experiences of the world. I was the person doing that, so that made me the focal point of the local and soon national media uh, that was picking up on the idea that salt was starting to gain traction so that was that turned into pretty much daily national media coverage so that was not ingenious on my part and i mean that P- pr yeah Yeah. pr You're, was everything we right only yeah. did pr and you were on like food network and yeah we were on uh, yeah. food network um msnbc cbs nbc abc uh yeah. national geographic uh, in all you know vogue and esquire and food and wine and cooking light and
0: you were like the food version of anderson cooper
1: yeah it was everywhere <laughs> when it when it, and i just don't have his hair although i did find his barber once by mistake in new york city and got a haircut from him so yeah. the anderson cooper he, look he has beautiful hair um, um so yeah so so pr was what we did mm-hmm. uh for a long time but we also had um a, a slightly different dimension which was this uh storytelling component in all of our product descriptions so very counterintuitive pl- product descriptions very floral language very over-the-top descriptions that were like, no, no, no. fantastical. Yeah, Fant- <laughs> just look at it. The idea is, let's stop. We're not going to talk about the properties of this and the this, that, and the other. Ooh.
0: He's getting a call. He's a CEO with him on a mission. <laughs>
1: Good Lord. <laughs> this is live. Uh, so the idea was to break things up and break out, break things out of people's molds, the preconceptions. So we did that with our our newsletter content, with our digital content, like our little website and, um, and in our stores. So that was something that I think gained traction and continued to get people's attention. But you know, nowadays, the main thing we focus on for our, our marketing is very much the oldest school method of marketing, which is the word of mouth. We're, it's our core strategy, and this is—I I don't say this with pride. I say this with, like, I'm not really sure. I, I think there probably are other ways to really engage with people um, effectively, but we're not really effective in, you know, Instagram and Facebook. We have a great Instagram, you know, it's at at, at the and um, we we engage in those things, but it's the most authentic, true, vital, long-standing. Built into our DNA way of marketing is uh, through people So our most valuable relation the thing that we can hear and we hear this every single day all day long is you're our favorite store And you're the first place. I take friends You're our favorite store. We book our Airbnb near your store. So we can be near it when we walk in It's a huge compliment. It's it's I take it really seriously It makes me want to just give everything to them to to be worthy of that kind of following and I also believe that in an age when retail is under a bit of a uh, pressure, a bit of a threat. From Amazon. From Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, just shifting demographics, the way the world's shifting. Um, it's, it's Amazon and globalization in general. You know, the the the, the alacrity with which um, a new local supermarket like uh, New Seasons comes on. They grow. They get bought by private equity they grow even bigger um, they entrench very effectively provide a beautiful shopping experience here in town and then grab up anything that they find successful in the local artisan community um, including very openly saying hi we're, we're sending our buyers into your store to look at what's hot they do this they do this people do this all, all these stores do this so we're in a threat from very very capitalized very very uh, uh, data centric very effective organizations that are out there to centralize uh, and take you know the business from other companies. So I don't bulk at that that's the way the world's shifting but it means that retail has to be different to be relevant uh, in the face of that you know uh, Whole Foods is now Amazon. Um, Walmart's remains I think the biggest retailer. But these uh, next level down, second tier companies are extremely capitalized, extremely effective, and they're all threatening little companies like ours. So we need to be your we need to be your absolute favorite store. You need to be able to walk in there and say, oh my gosh, even though I don't need bitters or salt or chocolate right now, or not very gifts. much. They gifts. They're gifts. Yeah. Or I want to come in and, and just try something new because I love being in the store and supporting it. And and and, and connecting with people in a different way, having a different moment. So the role of our store in your life as a consumer is no longer just to provision you, which is what stores used to be. Now it's to give you a different way of connecting with food, a way that you can't get from a restaurant, and a way that you can't get from traveling on your own, uh, the way you can't get from being at your friend's house. We're, we're a different kind of place in your life.
0: Awesome. Well, this is uh, my last question as we're wrapping up. But it, um as you look back in your formative experiences and maybe you've already answered it with your seven year motorcycle walkabout in France and Europe, but what earlier moments in your life or a moment um, do you think kind of defined the grit, metal independence um, things that are so core to being an entrepreneur and being as successful as where you are today like what do you what do you attribute like what's a life moment that kind of you feel like defined you and maybe just you've already described it but I feel like all of these roads led you here and it's it's you've been describing it the whole time but I'm I'm wondering if we missed missed something along the way or or
1: I I think I think I felt entrepreneurial my whole life. I definitely didn't know what to do. I didn't have the people skills to make it work. I didn't have a lot of what it took to, to, uh, to provide the, the place for a company to be successful. Um, but what I did find early on, I became very aware of it, very keenly aware of it early on, was that a business is an amazing place to learn about yourself. And I became wowed by the level of self-discovery because every single mistake you have, every single flaw you have as a person It's amplified, is amplified beyond anything anybody ever sees. You do, your friends forgive you for everything. Your family is stuck with you. Um, the few things you venture out to try here and there, who really cares, whatever. In a business, if you're a critical person, you will drive morale down the tubes fast. If you're... Um, A scatterbrain person, you'll have people ineffective and lost soon. If you're financially at a loss for how things work in the world, you'll have a bankrupt company. Any single aspect, plus all the psychological drivers behind that, will screw you really quickly in really magnificent ways. Mm -hmm. So I was like, wow, I have room to grow as a human being and maybe even massive room to grow. And I actually have always been really hungry to grow. I've never been that in love with myself. Mm-hmm. And it goes to my way back times, and I've always been really kind of critical of myself. So here's a way that I can really reliably identify what needs work. Mm-hmm. And then I'll know when I've made progress, because stuff will get better. Mm-hmm. So that, that level of, I'm so in love with that, the honor to have a place that will allow me to do that and will reward me and reward other people Mm -hmm. for going through that process.
0: Gave me the, the goosebumps a little bit because I know how much benefit you and I have from this entrepreneur, small group support group, but where it is so holistic of what happens, you know, in your, like your marriage or, you know, key relationships or things outside the business totally affect the, the whole person and how you show up in the business and all, all the growth that you and I have had over the last four years has been, been so huge. And there's such a level of gratitude, like as I hear you're talking and how I think about it is like, I have such gratitude that all of this is a gift and, um, hopefully our audience will pick up on that too (laughs) yeah so awesome to have you on the show thank you so much well
1: thank you so much this was really a a, a great time thanks a lot all right cheers